you will, open your Bibles to what uh, should be a very, very familiar text to this church, uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. I uh, do not have a count. It would be interesting uh, to know uh, how many times uh, over the course of my pastorate here we have uh, preached from or alluded to uh, this uh, marvelous passage. And we go to it to once again begin a series that we have uh, repeated uh, quite a number of times, uh, a series in uh, commemoration, uh, in uh, remembrance and celebration of the Protestant Reformation uh, that we affirm, uh, that we confess, that, that we insist upon uh, the great solas of this Reformation that we indeed are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to God's glory alone. And I repeat this series not because of lack of new subjects or uh, new uh, ideas for series to preach from. I repeat them very, very intentionally. Some of you may remember that several months ago I waxed insightfully and eloquently uh, on the issues of learning theory. Most of you told me how incredibly bored you were by that. But those of you that are truly of the elect told me how much you appreciated uh, those insights. And so we know a little bit about how we learn that informs us as to how we teach. And we learn by means of repetition. These musicians have spent their entire life strumming guitars and stroking pianos to master the art of playing those instruments. Those that uh, perform athletics at a high level, they practice the various techniques that are involved in throwing or hitting or doing any of the things involved in sports. They do them over and over again. And so it is in the realm of the mastery of the Word of God. We go back to the same text and the same truths, and we repeat them over and over again and in hopes that as I do them, that I will grow in God's grace and I will gain greater appreciations for these truths and be able to present to them to you in a more insightful way. And as the God who inspired these texts illuminates our hearts and minds, our hearts and our minds shall be joined together. Our hearts shall be actually enlarged that we grow in our appreciation of God and His magnificent grace. And so indeed, we look once again at a great text. Indeed, we repeat these five themes that we have looked at so very often. But I assure you, God has blessed me 
by reviewing this subject one more time. And by God's grace, if he allows me to live, we will see these texts once again. We will discover and rediscover and enhance our appreciation and our understanding of the Word of God and the God of the Word until, until the day our understanding is perfected when we see Him. So read with me, if you will, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of our because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We confess that just as those who wrote this text were carried along by your spirit, so we too depend on that very same spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds, to give us understanding, to give us appreciation, to, to so work in us that we indeed would worship you for all that you are and for all that you have done. Lord, it is always my desire that if there's one here that remains in this condition so well described as dead, in their trespasses and sin. I pray that faith would come to them by hearing. I pray that the imperishable seed of the new birth would come to fruition in their heart and in their mind, that you would cause them to be born again as a working of your gracious power. Again, for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our souls. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a contemporary condition that sometimes is referred to as chronological snobbery. That, that is that we in the current age look back at those in preceding ages 
and assume that they were wrong, that they were in error, that they were mistaken, and we, by the default setting of being in this era, era are right. And we look back on the failures of those from the past and we, in a very high-minded way, assume that had we been in their shoes, had we lived in their time, had we had their particular circumstances, we would have never made the mistakes. We would have never failed in the way those of our past have failed. And it's because of that, because the contemporary church so often takes its cues from a, a fallen culture in our fallen world, we so often neglect the witness of the great men who plumbed the depths of the great truths of the Word of God from the past. Uh, uh, the, the time that I think I irritated Dean Timothy George at Beeson Divinity School the most is when I asked him one day at lunch, Dean George, we're a Baptist school. Why do we take all these good preacher boys that are Baptists and turn them into Presbyterians? He said, boy, don't be saying that kind of stuff. And then later I said, we're Baptists. We don't do church history. Dean George is one of the leading church historians in the world today. But my point is this. Yes, indeed, we say as Baptists that we are people of the book, and rightly so. And I think that that flows out of the, the, the fount of the Protestant Reformation of Scripture alone. But as Dean George so rightly points out, we believe in Scripture alone, but not Scripture only. That, that we would be wise to look at those who have given us insight from the past. That we would be wise to use the confessions and the catechisms from the past to help us to rightly divide this word of truth. And it is these men that, that were uh, those that led this great gospel recovery, this great revival, this spiritual awakening in the church that gave us such a great heritage and such a great insight. To be sure, these men were frail. They were faulty. They were fallible. We know that, and they knew that. It was the desperation of realizing his own sinful helplessness and hopelessness that Martin Luther was driven to his knees to his Bible and to his Savior, Jesus Christ. It was in his Bible that he discovered that the just shall live by faith. He experienced and understood that his singular hope was found in the gospel of God's grace. He came to believe that Jesus was his exclusive hope for salvation. There, there is ample and justified criticism to go around in regards to Luther's anti-Semitic rages and Calvin's complicity in the persecution of his opponents or Cranmer's cowardice and compromise. They were like all men, imperfect men, living in a fallen world. That is, they were a product of, of their times, but at that same time, they were special vessels useful to God's purposes. If the standard in the church or in the culture is that the only message to be believed is the message delivered by a perfect messenger, 
then indeed we've all got quite a dilemma. Now, in one sense, I would be quite pleased to accept that criteria because the church is the only one to have a perfect messenger and a perfect message, that being Jesus Christ and His gospel. However, it is God's plan that He would use imperfect men to proclaim His perfect message for the salvation of all who would believe. So it is with informed respect and appropriate discernment that we do once again visit and celebrate the great biblical truths summarized in what we call the five solas, the five alones of this Protestant Reformation. We confess joyfully, and I believe we confess biblically, that indeed we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, that this is revealed to us in Scripture alone, and it is accomplished for God's glory alone. So we begin today with a look at grace alone. We confess that we are saved simply and surely by the grace of God extended and applied to our lives. If you look at the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul begins with this great doxology, the greatness of the God of our salvation who has accomplished our salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. That doxology soars to, to great heights. It is a great confession of the greatness of God. But having said those things, having written those things, he transitions into chapter 2 and begins to very intentionally paint the darkest of backgrounds, the most desperate of situations for those who would know this marvelous grace, this marvelous work of God's salvation. That, that is, he speaks to the desperate and even despicable situation that all men find themselves in. And notice how he phrases it, speaking to the church. In other words, as I stand here before you today, presumably most of you being believers, having been born again, I can say with Paul to you and to myself, as for us, it is a good thing for us to once again remember that previously, before God worked in our life, we were dead in trespasses and sin like the rest of mankind. That is an appropriately humbling concept for us. And so, Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he displays this brilliant, wonderful, testimony of God's grace against the darkest background, that being man's sin and rebellion against God. Now, when we speak of grace, what do we mean? And very simple definition is the granting 
of favor for those to whom punishment is deserved, or the granting of forgiveness for those whom punishment is deserved, the extension of pardon to those who are under God's condemnation. We might distinguish it slightly from the concept of mercy, is that mercy is help for the helpless, and that is also true in regards to salvation. But I think grace is a a far better term to speak of God's attitude towards us in that we were under rightly and justly His condemnation for our sin. And so when we say that God saves us by His grace, what we are saying that essentially God is the one and only actor in our salvation. It is not that we determine to clean our act up, to be better people, to have a better outlook on life, a better destiny in our future, that we decided to become Christians. It was God and God alone that acted singularly, exclusively. He did not partner with anyone. This grace is intrinsic In the character of God, he was not compelled by anything outside of himself. He was motivated by that which was intrinsic to his being. And so we say, we use the term, kind of a big fancy word. You know, I like to use big fancy words sometimes. The word is monergism. Salvation is monergistic. Mono, one, energistic, again, energy, working, power. There's one power that accomplishes our salvation, and that power is God's power. He gives us this power through which we believe in the working of regeneration, and so that is God and God alone working upon us. So we can say in all of these things in regards to salvation that God is the originator of salvation in election. And again, Paul explores that a bit in chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians. He is the revealer of salvation in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the accomplisher of salvation in the atonement. He is the applier of salvation in regeneration. He is the preserver of salvation in sanctification, and He is the power of salvation in our glorification. All God's work, all for God's glory, and all to the benefit to those who deserve His wrathful punishment forever. And so, first of all, we see that man is in the universal need for grace. I'm going to ask you to turn back in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Imagine starting a sermon at the beginning of the Bible. That's a neat concept, isn't it? Hey, we're starting off today, new series. Why not start at the very place everything starts? The book of Genesis. Just an excellent place to start. We've never done that before, so I just thought we'd do it today to make the series just a little bit unique. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we begin to see an unpacking, an explanation of how it is that we came to be in this desperate situation 
of being spiritually dead, not spiritually sick, not, not spiritually injured, but spiritually dead. That's a devastating diagnosis. Some of you have had, and some of you have had family members that have had devastating medical diagnosis. It's a tragic moment when the doctor comes in and says, there's this, there's that, there's uh, the other thing. But as long, no matter how catastrophic the disease, as long as there's breath in life, there's, there's kind of a sense of, of hope that, that maybe God would act and maybe God would heal, whether miraculously or through the intervention of, of doctors and, and the medicines that they use. But when they come in and say, your loved one is dead, the realm of hope in this you know, practical world is over. And so the diagnosis by God of our condition is the most helpless and hopeless condition that he could attribute to us. That is that we are dead. And this came to us because of the actions, the rebellion of our first parent, Adam. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, I believe Hosea refers to this incident in the garden where he calls Adam a covenant breaker, that we became sinners because Adam took the opportunity to break the covenant that God had placed him under. Sometimes we call that the covenant of works. Look at verse 15 of Genesis 2. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And I've told you this before, those two words, work and keep, are utilized later in Scripture to describe the work of the priests in the tabernacle. There was kind of a sense where Adam and Eve were placed in this temple environment, namely the garden, in which they were to worship God, they were to honor Him by maintaining the temple garden, okay? And so that's kind of an interesting parallel uh, there. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. I've made provision for your well-being. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The way Hebrew makes that emphasis, in dying you die. Okay, it's a repeat of the same word. And so when you do this, it is certain that you will die. Now, some of you astute critics may say, well, he didn't drop dead. Yes, he did. The principle of mortality, that is the physical realities of death, became his reality. He was not subject to mortality up to that point, and he became separated from God, from the one who gives spiritual life. And so in that one act, he was rendered spiritually dead, mortality set in upon him, and there was cosmic chaos that all of the created order fell with and in Adam, okay? And so that's why life is so difficult. You hear me? How many times have you heard me say that because of a fallen world, we have the physical realities of sickness and death. We have the realities of 
relational challenges, that, that it is hard to get along, and we have the environmental uh, uh, problems that, simply put, it's hard to put food on the table because the ground keeps producing thorns and thistles, and there's many implications to that. So all of this came through the rebellion of Adam. And so we are condemned in Adam. Paul wrote both in Romans 5, beginning in verse 12, fairly extensively, but he says a little bit more succinctly in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now this is a reality, this becomes our reality, we're born DOA. We're born dead on arrival. We are dead men walking, okay? This is our reality because God determined that Adam would be our representative. He would be our federal head in the garden. That his action and his activity was done on our behalf. He represented us. You say, well, that's not fair. You're telling me this guy that I've never met. And I'm not even sure if I like him very much. I'm not sure I'd elected him. I don't think I would have voted him king. He, I would not have made him my representative. We'll take that up with God because that's the way he chose to do it, okay? The, your, your, your issue's not with me, it's with God. But here's the genius. Because Adam is the head of the race of all men, there's a principle put in place that there can be one who represents and acts for another, that he can be a representative, that he can be a substitute. And God provides a second Adam. And that second Adam's name is Jesus Christ. And where Adam failed miserably, where Adam rebelled against God, Jesus Christ fully obeyed God. And by his intrinsic righteousness and by the intrinsic, by, by the performance of all the demands that God had placed upon him, namely revealed in the law, Jesus was the perfect sacrificial lamb. He was the substitute. And upon him, God exacted the wrath and condemnation due for all that would find themselves in and under the headship of Christ that would transfer, in a sense, from the headship of Adam to the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in Adam, we are dead. We are without hope, and we, were, we are without help. That, that, that we, as we read earlier, we have all sinned. We, we are not sinners because we have sinned. We sin because we are sinners. Okay? You need to get that right. We sin because we are sinners. And in this spiritually dead state that, that uh, let's go back to our text in Ephesians, that Paul fleshes out for us uh, a bit. We're, we're walking dead men, there in verse 1, we're following the course of the world, the fallen world, the, the system under the control of Satan himself dictates 
how we think and how we act. It, it determines our priorities. It sets our agenda. It defines for us our affections. And by following the course of the world, we're following the prince of the power of the air. And we were all like that, okay? And we ought to think about that. We love to point our fingers out at the unbelieving world. And, and indeed, there must be an appropriate indictment for their sin. But always remember, except for the grace of God, there go I. And so in this spiritually dead state, we are devoid of spiritual life because we are separated from the very source of life, that namely being God. Therefore, I, I, I usually give you two categories. We are unable to do what God demands, and we're unwilling to do what God demands. They're, they're, they're related, but they're also a distinctive that, that we would make, that, that we cannot repent and believe in and of our own accord. Now, at a certain intellectual level, probably any child properly instructed by the age of seven, eight, nine, ten years old, could outline for you what God has done through Jesus Christ and why he has done it. They, they could give you that narrative, okay? They could explain to you that story. But when Paul says in Romans 3 that no one understands, he is saying that it's not that the concept of the gospel is of such lawfully intellectual information that no one can fathom it. He is saying that no one so understands it that they savingly believe it, okay? It, it, it's one of those things I was thinking uh, this morning. I know that if you, do, if you run a vehicle engine without oil in it, you will blow the engine up. I've known that for 50 years. And you know, as a fully grown man, well into my 40s, I ran one of my trucks without oil in the engine. I understood it fully. But $2,000 later, I really came to understand what it means that you need to check the oil in an engine, okay? I understood it in a different way. If you'd asked me, Tim, what happens to an engine? when you run it without oil. Now, I'm no mechanic. Y'all know that. But I knew the answer to that question. And, but you know what? I was without the application of that understanding in a way that prevented me from blowing $2,000 of my money. It was a terrible lesson at a terrible time to learn. And so we are unable to appreciate and apply the implications of the gospel, and we're unwilling we don't want it. Now, now and, and this is why I am so hostile, and I get so mad, and I jump up and down about all this stuff, about invitations and raising hands and walking the aisles and all this stuff. All you got to do is pray the prayer, pray the prayer, pray the prayer, ask Jesus into your heart. You can convince all kinds of people that it would be in their best interest to do whatever it is you're telling them to do. You can, they will do that if they think it's in their best interest, and they do it sincerely, folks. 
99 nine-tenths percent of the time, they really mean it. But it's dangerous to just say that's all there is to it. They, they are unwilling to really, genuinely, repent and believe because that involves the surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ, which is always ultimately distasteful to the unbeliever. I, I gave the silly analogy a few weeks ago, utilizing mayonnaise. Can I eat a spoonful of mayonnaise? In one sense, I can. I mean, I could take a spoon and get a big dollop of that absolutely nasty, disgusting stuff. And I can open my mouth, and I can poke it back there, and I might be pretty ugly seen afterward. But there's kind of that reality. There's kind of a can to it. But you know what? I'm unwilling because it's inconsistent with who I am. And that's the thing. When the gospel is rightly presented and the implications of that gospel are rightly explained, not only is the individual unable, they are unwilling. Why do you think Jesus so often said, here's what you've got to do. You've got to deny yourself daily, and you've got to take up your cross and follow me. I mean, that cut out a lot of foolishness. It, it, he didn't stand up there at the front of the tabernacle and say, oh, please, please, please come and invite me into your life and in, into your heart. I will make your life so much better. Your mamas and your daddies will all be so proud of you if you do this and you can go home. And He didn't do that. He made tough demands. And so... In our depravity, in our spiritual death, we're unable, unwilling. We're uninformed as to the, the real glory and beauty of the gospel. We're uninterested in it. And ultimately, we're unconcerned. I've never seen this in print, but I'm going to allude to it, that Spurgeon was once asked about how you know if you're of the elect or not. And I'm told that his response was, if you're worried about it, you probably are. And I, I kind of concur with, with that. I did not worry about whether I was saved or not until I was saved. Never really thought about it. Had no concern. If you'd asked me, yeah, I'm going to heaven. Sure, of course. I'm Tim Evans. What else would you think? Never thought about it until God replaced my heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And so, man is a slave to sin. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 5, those in the flesh cannot, that's, that's, that has to do with ability, they cannot please God. They, they can't do it. They lack the ability to please God. And so, as we've said already, man is walking according to the ways of this world because God has consigned or assigned all men to disobedience. Romans chapter 11 and verse 32. That is the universal state of all men, that they are under God's wrath because they have sinned in Adam. They are under God's judgment. And now, you may sit in here and you may be thinking, well, I'm sure that applies to my husband or my wife or my children 
But it surely doesn't apply to me because I was always the good kid. I, I was all, I was all, I never did anything wrong. Right? Don't raise your hand, but I know some of you are out there that are like that. You all just never did anything wrong. Well, just real quickly, you don't have to turn there, but if you go back to Exodus 20, that's where we have the list of the Ten Commandments. And if you'll honestly survey them, you'll find that you're guilty. That you're guilty of sinning against God. I mean, if God says, have no false gods. Well, here's the thing. In any moment where you have a greater priority and have greater affection for anything other than Almighty God, you have a false god. You have placed something before God that, that you're not to have idols, any, any activity. And, and here, listen. Somebody's just going to have to explain it to me because I, don't, I just can't see it any other way. But as I look across churchdom, which includes the Southern Baptist Convention, why is it that typically somewhere between one-half and two-thirds of those that say they're members of the church have no interest in ever being there? Have they not found something that has a higher priority that is more worthy of their worship than gathering at the appointed place at the appointed time to worship the one true God? I don't know any other way to, to see it, okay? So, there's just two of them. We have taken the Lord's name in vain. If you haven't done it by oath, you have done it by action. Then, remember the Sabbath. Now, we can debate how that exactly applies. But I believe, at least in principle, there is a designated time that the people of God are to separate, separate themselves, set apart, and gather for the purpose of worshiping Him. We can, we can flesh out and argue about a lot of details, but I believe it is a biblical thing to gather as God's people in God's name for God's purpose. And so somebody would have to explain to me, and again, I understand sickness and health, I understand that, but other than those types of things, Somebody would have to explain, well, I've just got something more important than doing this. And then let's just, let's just, run, let's just finish the list. Honor your father and mother. Anybody want to take a stab at that one? I don't. I don't. Murder. We've all been mad. Adultery. I don't think I need to say a whole lot about that. Jesus said, what about that? You even entertain it. You have a thought in your mind. Stealing, lying, coveting. We are guilty as charged. Now, Tim, why do you take so much time making us feel bad? You're just beating us up. And, you know, we came here to be affirmed and, you know, to be, to be loved on. And uh, we've had a tough week. And, you know, I just, I just need to feel your strong arm around me and telling me, you know, that you love me and God loves me. And, you know, on and on it goes. You don't appreciate the grace of God until you understand the desperate situation that either you're in right now or that you were in previously. You know, one of the most, uh, I guess, ubiquitous types of ads that we see on television, if you watch any amount of television, are ads for medicines. You know, I mean, you name it. I mean, Cure everything. 
Now, of course, they tell you at the end, now this may kill you, but it could cure you. But, but it not, you know, anyway, but they're, they're there. And I pay them very little attention. Because to my knowledge, I don't have any of those diseases. And I, I mean, I'm, it's great and good that there's this medical research and they're doing these things. And if you've got these diseases, that there are things that might help you. I, I mean, in a kind of a general sense, I, I, I'm thankful. But let me tell you something. If I had one of those diseases, I would be intensely focused and intensely appreciative for a medicine that would address that particular disease. And until you recognize that indeed you either have or you have had this particular calamitous situation of being dead in trespasses and sins, you're not prepared to appreciate the glory, the enormity of God's grace. And so, this grace is unconditionally applied to those who are fallen in Adam. Because what? We're unable and unwilling to apply it to ourselves. If, if God were to come down and walk the streets of Clay, Alabama, I've got grace here. I've got grace here. Bottles of grace, they are free. All you have to do is take it, bathe in it, drink it, take an IV. From, you know, it's yours. It's your, I will give it to you. Just take it. Not a single individual would take freely of God's grace. They're unable to extend the hand, and even if they could, they're unwilling to admit their desperate need for this grace. And so we must be, if there's going to be grace received, we must be chosen in Christ. Go back to chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians. In this great doxology, in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul describes the situation of the believer as those that God has chosen in Christ, in Him, before the foundation of the world for the purpose that we would be holy and blameless. He chose to do it this way for the praise of His glory. In verse 11, it says we have been predestined. The idea of choosing or election has to do with the act of the choice. The idea of predestination has to do with choosing for a particular purpose, a purpose of bringing glory to God and applying saving grace to uh, the individual. And so, we must be chosen by God to be special objects of His affection. Now, again, this is mentioned any number of times. Paul goes through great lengths in Romans chapter 9 and says that essentially God just shows mercy upon whom He shows mercy. It's just God's choice, God's, God's will. That's, and, and, and he gives all these historical illustrations and says that, that these things stand to illustrate the reality of God's sovereign choice in this matter of salvation. And it's not unusual when I mention these things for people to go, well, Tim, I just don't believe that. You know, y'all know, know the response. And let me tell you, you don't have the option. 
you don't have the option. They're right here in the Bible. Now, the problem many times, and I get into these discussions sometimes, with people that are using the same Bible, but they're using a different dictionary, okay? And, and that, that's kind of a problem sometimes. But there, there are two ways to get around a biblical understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation, particularly as it pertains to the doctrine of election. Election to experience God's grace. Election to salvation. One is to be an open theist or, you know, or a deist or something like that. Well, you know, God would like to know, but, you know, since we're completely free and autonomous, he really can't know what we're going to do. And that's a heresy, okay? Now, most people, if you press them, will eventually go, ah, well, God knows those that are going to choose him and he, he chooses them because he, they're going to choose him. Well, that's a very weak view. It's a very defective view. But you haven't preserved what you're trying to preserve if you're trying to preserve the autonomy of the human being. If God knows what you're going to do, guess what you're going to do? And the thing is, we, we really don't act in a vacuum. That is, when God made you, can we all agree God made us? Okay. And he designed your eye color and your hair color, as transitional as some of our hair colors may be. He designed your height or lack thereof. He designed a lot of everything about you, really. And he designed you... I'll just call it with a certain personality, certain intellect, a certain sensitivities, a certain emotional range. You know, we all know people that, 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 that are moved, and sometimes they're foolishly moved just by their emotions, whether they're anger or, or sadness. You follow what I'm saying? They'll make a decision just, just strictly out of their emotions. And some people can't be moved at all. They, they are just simply do, do not seem to have emotions. Well, again, God designed us that, that particular way, that, that God designed us with, with a certain, certain type of will. And some people are very strong-willed and some people are very weak-willed. All of these things, God put us in certain types of, of, of providences, certain, certain families, certain situations. Let me, let me tell you one of the ways I'm wired up. I avoid pain. I avoid pain. Now, my parents, when they said don't or do, there were consequences, there were severe, and, and they were consistent, okay? That if I crossed a boundary, there were painful consequences, and, man, I just wanted to avoid them. I, I'm not, I wasn't, you know, the best kid on the block. I wasn't the worst kid on the block. But, but I did not want to incur punishment. Uh, to say it in another way, you know, we, we've all known, known the kid that, you know, takes his bicycle to the top of the hill and goes barreling off and, and has a wreck and turns over four times and, you know, gets patched up and says, okay, now I think I got it. And I'm going to go back to the top of the hill and do the same thing over again. Now, I might have tried it once, or I might have looked at it and go, ah, I just don't think that's a good idea. I'm going to avoid pain. I just, but, but we all know kids that the 12th time they crash their bike and are beat all the heck in back, 
they're ready to go back up the 13th time. They're, they're just that kid. They're, they're, I, I mean, I've, I've heard of kids, and, and some of them you know, my, my parents would spank me, and I'd still go on and do it. I went, you, your parents didn't spank you, right? I can just tell you that. If my dad had got a hold of you, you'd stopped. But do you see the range of the way God designed us and how we respond to things? It's still a sovereign act of God. Even the hearing of the gospel. Not everybody even hears the gospel and has the possibility of salvation. So you accomplish nothing by avoiding the doctrine that God is sovereign in the application of His grace. So there's an unconditional application of His grace. And therefore, there's an unending impact of His grace. Jesus Himself spoke of this reality of his promise that the Father would give those that would come to him and that those that came he would raise up. And then he would go on to explain in John 6 that no one can, the Greek is dunamos, no one has the ability, the power, unless the Father draws or enables, okay? And so God must do something to bring you. And that drawing... And we can even say, in some sense, some people will talk about conviction, okay? The, 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 the weightiness of our, our sin. And I believe that's a part of the drawing. We're convicted. We're drawn. We hear the realities of our guilt, our sin, our desperate situation. And we hear the gospel. And God regenerates us because to move from the realm of death and the reality of being dead in trespasses and sin, what must happen? We must be born again. And that is a unilateral, monergistic application of, the God, of God's grace upon the heart and the mind of those God has chosen. That God gives to those He chooses a heart of flesh, removing their heart of stone. And so... They are regenerated, and in that moment, they are indwelled, and they are sealed by God's Holy Spirit, and that is a, a powerful, effectual seal by which they are transformed, and by God's power, they are sanctified. They, they grow in the ability to say no to the ungodliness of this world and live an upright and godly life in this present age, and in this we are moving toward that great day when by God's power we're glorified. And so my point in, in kind of ending with the glorification, our resurrection, we can all say or all know that is a remarkable demonstration of God's power. For that body that's been placed in the ground and has decayed many times for centuries, to be raised imperishable, to be raised incorruptible, to be raised glorious, that is surely and singularly the work of a powerful God that He works unilaterally, that He works monogistically. Well, He did the same thing when He saved you. When He gave you a fleshly beating heart, He raised you out of and from your spiritual death. And so, that's why we can rightly sing and we can marvel at that great song that we sang just before we began today. And I want to just walk back through 
the verses once again because it does cause us to frame our thinking and it gives us articulation that we are saved to the praise of His glorious grace. That when we see our desperation, when we see our depravity, we're left to do what? Marvel. Marvel in this magnificent grace of God. As we sang a moment ago, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Just think about that for a minute. Our, I know something about sin and guilt, and grace exceeds it. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Sin and despair, like sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infant loss, infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Brighter than snow you may be today. That's why we sing grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace. God's grace. Indeed, a grace that thankfully, for His glory and for our good, is greater than all of our sin. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for that grace. We live in light of that grace and the experience of that grace. God, we thank You that the promise, that the grace through which You saved us is the grace that indeed shall lead us home. May we never fear. May we never despair. May we live in light of, may we live in the enjoyment of this marvelous grace given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.